Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jomek about her new book, Lost Histories, Recovering the Lives of Japan's Colonial Peoples, published by the Harvard University Asia Center in 2019. Dr. Jomek, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So how did you become interested in East Asian studies and specifically in Japan and its colonial people? Okay, well, uh, I actually came to study Japan and East Asia very accidentally. So when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern University, I was a history major, but I focused on European history. And I only, you know, took a few classes on East Asia very late senior year when I, you know, had extra um, time to take classes outside of my concentration of Europe. Um, So actually how I came to, you know, think about Japan was I was working for Laura Hine at Northwestern um, as a research assistant. And I was just talking about how I was uncertain about what to do after graduation and she told me about the jet program and you know i had kind of thought i had to you know apply to graduate school right away and at that point i was thinking i would apply for european history and she kind of just talked about you know not needing to rush entering grad school and you know taking some time to kind of think about what you wanted to do um, so I, I ended up applying to the JET program just as an option. I got in, went to Japan. I had never studied the language, um, and I stayed there for two years learning Japanese. And I began to really, uh, you know, learn and appreciate the culture and history. And that's when I decided to apply for graduate school, but this time in Japanese studies. And so it was quite accidental and um you know, it, it's quite um, interesting to think how you go into college kind of thinking one thing and then just, you know, a random twist of fate um, kind of puts you in a different path. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's a really interesting journey. I, I guess we're lucky that you um, definitely chose this path. <laughs> the other. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so I guess before we go into the book, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write Lost Histories? Yeah, well, actually, you know, it really began, the process of this project really began when I was in graduate school. And it was all, you know, I was taking historiography classes for, you know, being in the history PhD program. And you're thinking about the different trends and the different developments in the writing of history. And, you know, it just came to me as a really critical question of, you know, what type of histories can we know? What type of histories can we write about? Um, Are there certain people whose histories are just, you know, kind of lost? And to me, the the question of methodology, of how you could do it, um, if you could do it, that was something that was really kind of interesting. And I didn't get to that initial question right away when I was in grad school. I kind of, the first year I had a, a couple different topics. Uh, you know, I wrote a couple of research papers on them. And my advisor, Sabina Frushuk, who is an amazing advisor, and I'm so grateful for everything that she has done to help me with my um, career and trajectory. Um, you know, she really just stressed the importance of finding something interesting and something that not only I would care about, which would motivate me to, you know, to do the research year after year, but what other people would care about. And, you know, one of the things that she had said to me early on, you know, just because someone hasn't written about it doesn't need, doesn't mean it needs to be written. You know, there's like reasons why certain things aren't talked (laughs) about. Um, And so I I kind of had a couple dud ideas. and, And then I read Alan Christie's article 
the making of imperial subjects in Okinawa and, you know, learned about the 1903 Human Pavilion. And that was when Japan displayed um, for the first time in a kind of pseudo-anthropological display its so-called ethnic others. And when I kind of read about the description of this pavilion, it kind of sparked this curiosity of, could I find out more information about the people who were in this display? And starting with this, you know, one incident, 1903, it became kind of the premise for the other parts of the book. Um, But at that time, it, it was my dissertation, but this kind of, you know, basic question of, at certain colonial sites where there's presumptions about rules, you know, the colonial subject did this because of the colonizer, um, you know, the colonized subject was acted upon, um, the colonized subject was representative of Japanese civilization, you know, all of these kind of vague things where you wouldn't know what colonial subjects actually did, I was trying to challenge these presumptions and find out if I could actually find what the people were doing, how are they thinking, how are they responding. And so, you know, this this one kind of incident in 1903, and then that kind of being the, the basis for the other um, parts of the dissertation, which eventually became the book. Um, the book focuses on colonial subjects from four different groups in the Japanese empire, Right, um, the indigenous people of Taiwan, Micronesians, um, the Ainu of Hokkaido, and Okinawans. Um, so, what was the reason for choosing these particular groups to focus on in your book? Um, well, it was basically, you know, a kind of pragmatic um, decision. Uh, when I was in grad school um, in the early two thousands, uh, this the current scholarship was on Korea, on Manchuria. And to a lesser extent, Taiwan, but those of Han ethnicity. And so when I was kind of thinking about where could I make a contribution, I thought about the the groups of people who were under colonial rule that had less attention, and that was the indigenous people of Taiwan and the indigenous people of Micronesia. Um, of course, there was you know works by Mark Petey for Micronesia and Paul Barclay for the indigenous people of Taiwan. But in terms of, you know, a lot of attention, it was really going towards Korea and Manchuria. So I kind of thought about these places as places that had less attention and also kind of the peripheral zones. And then in addition to that, you know, the Ainu and Okinawans at this time, especially in the 1990s, were receiving a lot of attention by scholars um, like David Howell and Michelle Mason and Gregory Smith's. Um, Alan Christie, uh, you know, kind of looking at what the role of Okinawans and Ainu were in Japanese empire. And up until that point, you know, the kind of traditional view of the empire is that Taiwan's the first official colony in 1895. And these historians that I just mentioned, they were really challenging that presumption and talking about Okinawa and Hokkaido in a way that when I write about it, it seems kind of normal and, and natural, but they really paved the way to to thinking about people who are today Japanese citizens, but back then um, their place as citizens or colonial subjects were really kind of murky and blurred. And so, what I liked about choosing these four groups of people is that it really uh, you know put to a test. What were the experiences of the Ainu like? And were they more comparable to um, Japanese or were, were they more comparable to indigenous people of Taiwan? And so if you were looking at colonialism as actually lived experiences and, you know, what people experienced versus, you know, kind of modern day rhetoric today where we talk about formal empire, what I found in my research is that these four groups of people actually had a lot more in common that made them akin to colonial subjects in terms of the Okinawans and Ainu. And again, as I said, you know, I really, you know, had benefited from the work of previous scholars who, who kind of started normalizing that conversation. And today, you know, um, Sayaka Chatani's book, um, 
she, you know, includes Okinawa along with Korea and Taiwan in her book. And so it, it's kind of become normal to, to think about the empire in this way, but it took several decades to get there. I see. Um, one interesting kind of theoretical approach that you took um, in the book to the study of, of these indigenous people of Taiwan, Micronesians, um, the Ainu and the Okinawan, is your engagement with um, Gayatri Spivak's theorization of the subaltern. Um, and in your book, you kind of argue that it's possible to um, unwrite the subalternity of the marginalized colonial subjects through what Spivak calls bringing subalternity to crisis. Can you tell us more about this approach um, that you took in the book and especially what you mean by um, the unwriting of subaltern histories? Yeah. So, you know, Spivak's essay, Can the Subaltern Speak? You know, it's one of the foundational kind of uh, essays if you're, you know, interested in colonialism, post-colonialism, and how to write histories of um, colonial peoples. And it was a real question and a question that I grappled with and thought about, you know, for almost, you know, nine, 10 years. And I thought, you know, any book that I'm going to write about Japan's colonial peoples, I'm going to need to justify how it is I can imagine that I can intervene in this kind of debate. And, And Spivak, you know, kind of you know, unapologetically says in no uncertain terms that um, the subaltern cannot speak. Um, And if you read her writing, you know, I looked at her writings for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years when she was writing about it. And, you know, she's clarified a point here or there, but she's pretty much stuck to the original kind of assertion, which is that there are some people who are unknowable, completely, you know, you cannot write their histories. And so in thinking about that, I had to kind of reflect upon my project and think, what exactly was I doing? Were the people I writing about, you know, pure subalterns um, whose histories were unknowable? And when I started, you know, looking at her writings at different journals and then I looked at interviews that she gave, I found, you know, this one interview that was quite interesting where the interviewers asked her about a possibility of gradations of subalternity. And Mm -hmm. this question about, could there be, you know, if you think about like a line and at one end of the line, you have like kind of the pure subaltern who's absolutely unknowable. And at the other end of the line, you have a person who we thought was subaltern, but upon research and finding out information about this person, they have their subalternity has been brought to crisis, meaning that they have a line to social mobility. They have a means of communication with the hegemonic power. And so if you think about it, like on one end, there's people who are so poor, impoverished, disenfranchised, um, we don't know anything about them. But on the other hand, there could be these people who traditionally are thought to be in these disenfranchised groups. But their subalternity is not fixed. It's, uh, you know, I argue in my book that subalternity can be temporal, meaning that today we can ascribe subalternity to minority groups um, just for lack of knowing anything about them. And and that temporal status can change if historians Mm -hmm. can find out information on them. And so one of the things that Spivak talks about, which I found so interesting, is that once you find out you know, that this person who you thought was unknowable, you actually find information, you see that they had a line um, to mobility or a line to communication. Once you discover that, don't reinscribe their subalternity by still insisting on calling them subalterns. So she talks about, you know, we want to celebrate the fact that there are some people who have an access to mobility. And so, you know, so in, in thinking about this line and gradation of subalternity being temporal and then also being dependent on how people are written about today, how people were written about then, uh, what I kind of imagine my book to be is a different um, spectrum of people. Some people are closer to the pure subaltern where, you know, I have a couple Okinawan women in the first 1903 
um, human pavilion incident who I have their names and I have a few, you know, you know, utterances that they've said. Um, but I only have rumors and gossips about potentially one person having committed suicide. And I have, you know, these kind of, you know, murmurs or glimpses of their lives that it's still so murky. So they're closer to this, you know, pure, absolute unknown person. But then throughout my book, I have other people who, you know, may have never been really mentioned before in a kind of really deep way that I've managed to uncover you know, so much information, met with their grandchildren or interviewed their grandchildren and have been able to kind of recreate a life history that really changes the way that we should define who they are. And so, uh, you know, the unwriting of subaltern histories is kind of thinking about this project as an attempt to you know, acknowledge on the one hand, there probably are, you know, some people that are extremely difficult to to know anything about. But then there's a, a lot of other people who are kind of resigned to this status, um, whose status doesn't have to be fixed uh, if there's attention and research given. Now, one thing that Spivak kind of talks about that is really useful is, you know, the danger of potentially you know, reinscribing imperialist structures, mm-hmm. um, particularly because, you know, as a Western historian, I'm kind of, you know, presuming to tell the stories of indigenous peoples. And so, you know, the potential to kind of replicate some, some kind of, you know, damage, you know, I see that as, you know, a potential, you know, problem. But I think The other problem is worse, which is saying, you know, because, you know, I am not, um, you know, indigenous Taiwanese, for example, I can't, you know, study and learn the histories um, of these people. And, you know, so I think, you know, there's a complicated, you know, issue of who can write these histories. And I definitely appreciate there are indigenous, you know, scholars who firmly believe that, it's indigenous peoples, you know, right only to, to write histories, um, of indigenous people. But I think there's also, um, you know, I've received, you know, warm, you know, reaction and, you know, welcome to, to research different communities, um, because they say that this is important for people to know about, but, you know, what the point that I'm trying to make is I'm fully aware that what I'm doing isn't telling the official history of X person. And I acknowledge that as a historian, I have chosen and selected evidence and I have cobbled, cobbled it together to present a narrative of a person. And, and what I want everyone who reads the book to, to understand is that I, I realize that I'm, I'm giving out one version of how I imagine this person's life to be. Um, and it's possible that there are other narratives that can be written as well. And, and so, you know, I, I, I want to be careful about, you know, what we can know. And, and even if there, you know, if you take this question to um, someone who isn't indigenous, let's say like a Japanese colonizer who, who goes to Taiwan, you know, how much can we recreate their life history? Can we recreate mm-hmm. their li- life history with 100% certainty? And it's only, you know, a, an I knew person's history that it has, you know, murkiness. And, and I don't think that would be the case. I think any historian researching any sort of, um, you know, individual would grapple with, you know, the kind of um, issue of representation and, and what we can know as fact. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes when we talk about colonial subjects, that, you know, conversation kind of leads us to this presumption of, well, it's like hands off or, you know, there's like really nothing that we can, we can do because it's, it could be a distortion of the truth. Whereas we kind of, you know, kind of take for granted that, you know, the main Japanese colonizer point of view is obviously what happened. But I think that uncertainty um, exists on both sides. Well, thank you for that um, really honest and, and nuanced 
explanation of the the theoretical approach, and and to follow up on this point, um, to recover the lost histories of Japan's colonial people, your book relied on really diverse sources well beyond the colonial archive, and this is definitely one of the highlights of the book. Can you tell us a bit more about um, the sources uh, in your book and your methodologies of recreating the colonial archive? Yeah, and so I think it's you know it's related to your previous question because you know this idea of the colonial archive is full of Japanese colonial documents written by Japanese colonial officials, you know, um, ethnographers, anthropologists, uh, police. You can get a Japanese kind of perspective on colonial peoples. However, at the same time, there's a lot of stuff outside of the colonial archive, like oral histories, material objects, um, images, film, um, a lot of things that traditionally wouldn't be seen as part of the official administration of the empire, um, including, you know, magazines and newspapers and other sorts of uh, popular culture. And so my idea of recreating the colonial archive is to try to use everything. And at first, when I began the project, I kind of naively took the premise that every document that I would read by the Japanese colonizer would be biased and therefore untrustworthy, and that any sort of, you know, oral history or sort of, you know, um, point of view from an indigenous person would be true and valid, you know? So I kind of had this false dichotomy of, well, the colonizer can't be trusted. And if I can recover indigenous voices, then that is their history. And what I came to discover after years and years of research and compiling all this information is that the best thing to kind of do is to kind of cross check and corroborate your sources across everything. And by cross-checking what an indigenous person said, you know, and see if I could find traces of that within the colonial documents, I was able to build a kind of foundation of knowledge in which, you know, things that um, indigenous Taiwanese or Ainu or Okinawans or Micronesians said were verifiable, you know, like their uh, oral histories or these material objects or these images you could find concrete links and evidence in the colonial archive, maybe not in a kind of super obvious way, but by looking at things back and forth, back and forth, I was able to kind of see that to, you know, to kind of, you know, think about recreating the colonial archive, we need everything. And in some cases, yes, the indigenous stories completely, you know, put a huge, um, you know, a huge clash or confrontation with the colonial narrative. And that's excellent. And that's great. But at other times, you know, the colonial documents themselves revealed information that allowed me to find other information outside of the archive. So, you know, I, you know, my approach was, you know, also including a lot of images so I have over 85 images in, in the book. And this was especially important for uh, my chapter on Taiwan's indigenous peoples, because when you look at the pictures of these indigenous um, Taiwanese, and in particular, I looked at an Atayal woman and a Bunan man. Um, and when I you know, looked at the photographic record, you could automatically see that these people were people of status. They mm-hmm. had power. And when you look at a photograph in which they're the center of the photo and they're clearly a person of honor, and then you kind of read some sort of, you know, basic, uh, you know, colonial document talking about the savagery of Taiwan's people, you know, the contrast is so, so explicit. And so I really felt it was necessary to include as many photographs of the different people um, that I could, just because they had these vast photographic traces. And I thought it was quite remarkable um, that once you started looking, and you know, a lot of times I found these photos, and they're unnamed, you know, it's, it's, you know, the my protagonist in my chapter, 
And, you know, in the photograph, they're not named, but because I knew their face and I knew who they were, I could identify them. And so in a lot of cases with the images that I have in my book, um, a lot of them are nameless in the photo, but I was able to like find them and say like, this is them (laughs) because I had somehow, you know, found that original photograph identifying who they are. So um, that was something I was excited about. Thank you. That's a really um, fascinating point. And, and I'm sure our readers will definitely appreciate um, the, the high quality kind of photographic and images um, contained in the book. And it's definitely, I would say, uh, one of the most kind of valuable kind of um, sources uh, embedded within this book, definitely. Um, I guess let's go to the chapters uh, within the books a little bit in the next part. Um, so you divided your book into three parts and part one of the book focuses on the peoples um, involved in the human displays in the early 20th century at domestic uh, expositions in Osaka and Tokyo in Japan, but also at international expositions at those held in St. Louis in 1904 and Linden in 1910. And in the chapters in part one, you show that the participants' motivations uh, experiences and the recollections, um, but these were really varied. So we see multifaceted individuals and not one-dimensional ethnic models. Um, can you tell us a bit more about these uh, varied experiences and what they were? Yeah. So you know, as I kind of talked about earlier, you know, one of my main um, you know goals of the book was to take sites of traditional. Um, presumptions of the colonial relationship and kind of flip it. So if you kind of see the three parts, the first part is on human displays at at world fairs. The second part is about, you know, this tour program that takes indigenous people to Japan. And the third is about Ainu tourist villages. All three of these sites involve display and performance and Mm -hmm. visual kind of representation And all three sites um, also rely on travel and fluidity and movement across the empire. And, you know, with the first part of the book, which is all about human displays in Tokyo, Osaka, as well as internationally, uh, what I came to find is that the Japanese experiences did not line up with the Western kind of historiography. And so previously, Japanese scholars have kind of looked at these displays as the Japanese kind of becoming Western, showing that they too are modern and civilized because they have their barbaric others to um, display. And so what I do in part one is, you know, look at different individuals who participated Um, see why they participated, and try to figure out what happened to them afterwards. And so in terms of the the diversity of experiences, you know, I I can mention a couple people and, you know, that would kind of give a flavor. So um, there's one person um, who participated in the 1904 um, Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis. And this Ainu man... um, Betty Goro um, was someone who wanted to go to America um, and his kind of view of, you know, working in this human display was something that would bring him, you know, adventure, would potentially bring him wealth. But this was an opportunity that he, you know, wanted to do. And towards the end of the time in St. Louis, when it was time to go back, he actually wanted to stay longer. But unfortunately, due to miscommunication, he wasn't able to stay longer. But one of the things that, um, interestingly, that Goro's story kind of reveals, you know, he has photo albums and his grandmother, sorry, his granddaughter um, Chikamori has his photo albums. And in these photo albums are his photographs of his time in St. Louis, and it, as well as photographs that um, American friends that he made took of him, um, photographs of other American friends, photographs of Native Americans and Patagonians and other indigenous people at St. Louis. And so when you kind of think about the traditional narrative of this Ainu village in St. Louis 
it pretty much goes, you know, the Ainu were taken to St. Louis, they were displayed as being primitive peoples. Um, and, and Goro's album kind of reveals this alternative narrative. And, and in one photo album page, he has one of the official exhibition um, photos where it's like nine Ainu, they're standing stoically in a row. And this photograph you can find at the, you know, Missouri History Museum, you know, it's kind of like the official narrative. Here are these indigenous people standing in line in their authentic, quote unquote, authentic, you know, clothing. Uh, But then when you look at his album, you can see that um, he has, you know, this kind of montage of these um, photos um, interspersed along with other photographs from different points of his life. He has photographs of Americans kind of on this one page where in the center he says, um, American friends that I've met. There's photographs of him at a house um, of this family that um, he became really good friends with. And so automatically you see um, that he was not a fixed, you know, cult, you know, cultural representative in this like fake model house. He was moving outside of this house. He was going beyond the fair, down the streets, into homes. Um, he had these interactions with people that involved, you know, the exchange of, uh, of images. And, you know, from what he ta- talked about with his experiences there, as well as the kind of oral histories that when he returned, he, you know, built his huge house and, you know, and him wanting to stay. So you, you get this completely alternative narrative, um, and then, you know, on the other hand, you have other, you know, experiences at, at, at the fairs, you know, that are a little bit darker, um, you know, for the 1910 London exhibition, I you was looking at Japanese newspapers and there was an interview, uh, I think either in the Asahi or Mainichi, and they asked the indigenous Taiwanese, it was a, a group of Paiwan men and women, they asked them at the end of their stay in London, what was the saddest time for you in London? Um, and they replied, one of our group died. Mm-hmm. And it was a really unexpected answer because, you know, I thought it was going to say um, we were so, you know, bored with being on display because in other articles, it kind of talked about their tedium of, of life on display. Um, but you know, it was like one sentence, like the worst thing that happened to us was that one of our people died. And based on that one sentence, I decided I'm going to go to the Fulham city archives, which is now closed, but back then it was open. I went through the burial records for that year and I was able to find the indigenous, um, Taiwanese who died and he was listed in the burial record. He was listed in the cemetery and the archive was right next to the cemetery and the archivist had, uh, she gave me a map. And so I was able to, you know, go to the pauper's mass unconsecrated grave where you would bury every single poor person who couldn't afford their own plot. I was able to find the general area that he was buried. And what kind of astounded me was how, you know, this one sentence was, you know, verifiable through these official histories, these official, Mm -hmm. you know, burial records through the cemetery map. Um, And, you know, the way that his name was written in the, in the burial records, it was, you know, anglicized. Um, And then, you know, his indigenous Taiwanese name was like, you know, butchered by the Japanese. So his name was like, you know, changed like three different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he was referred to as a woman in some reports, but it was a man. Um, But, you know, I was able to find, you know, this death um, and, you know, with this group from Taiwan in 1910, in addition to, you know, kind of finding this, this story of someone who had died that no one else has ever written about. Uh, I also relied a lot on postcards uh, and these postcards on the back of the indigenous Taiwanese um, cards, they had writings by the fairgoers who had met the person and it would say, you know, uh, Taiwanese chief gave me this flute or um, Taiwanese chief has scalps of 24 people hanging from his sword. So there would be information 
about the people on display. And there would also be information about interacting with them in English. They would be saying, you know, this man said it's cold. And so what I was able to, to do is, you know, I went to a lot of postcard fairs. There's a lot of these like huge convention center fairs where they just sell a bunch of postcards. Mm -hmm. And I went through all over the place to try to find these postcards from the Formosa village. And these postcards were really hard to locate because unlike the Ainu cards that had 1910 Japan British Exhibition, Ainu Mm -hmm. village stamped on them, the indigenous Taiwanese village did not have any writing on them. They were Mm -hmm. just a picture of the different individuals. And so postcard collectors a hundred years later, a lot of times these cards were filed under, you know, miscellaneous race or, you know, just random, you know, places because they weren't really necessarily linked with 1910. Mm-hmm. So I went through, I found a bunch of these postcards and the, one of the big conclusions is the Paiwan, when they were in London, really learned English, you know, really well. Um, and, you know, this was kind of backed up by Japanese newspaper reports that kind of mentioned it. Um, but then, I, you know, I, I found this article that talked about how a British botanist had visited the group in London. And so I did some research on this botanist. And sure enough, I found he had a diary. And this diary was at the Kew Botanical Gardens. And in this diary he goes back to Taiwan and he tracks down the Paiwan that he met in London. And he has a fascinating, you know, several day account in their village where he pretty much talks about how inept the Japanese are because the Japanese can't speak English, how, you know, fluent the Taiwanese are because they can communicate and understand him. And it just Mm -hmm. completely flips the kind of narrative that the Japanese were trying to push at this time. Um, and so those are just a couple examples of, you know, the types of experiences that I found and like the different ways I was able to kind of bring them out. Wow. All this is incredibly fascinating. Wow. This is really great. And, and the way you, you did research is so inspirationally thorough. Um, it's, it's quite fascinating to hear all these. Um, I'm, I'm sure our readers would like to hear more examples. Um, but Moving on a little bit about another point um, in the same part, um, like you have demonstrated in the, in the first part of the book, the displaying of ethno-racial difference was also a major part of these expositions. So how were ethno-racial differences used by different groups for different aims? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the main, you know, assumptions within colonial studies with Japan that I kind of wanted to push back against was this idea that every time ethno-racial difference was being discussed or talked about, it was through for negative purposes. You know, like this is because they are savage or barbaric. And so we're going to highlight the fact that they are, you know, non-Japanese. And what I found, and also along with that presumption, comes this kind of idea that the goal of empire for both colonizers and colonized is to assimilate and that you're supposed to, as a colonizer, try to want to make your colonial subjects be Japanese. And then also, on the other hand, um, colonized subjects are going to also be striving to be Japanese. And and I kind of tested this kind of, um, you know, idea and kind of, you know, one of the kind of foundational things that you're taught about when we read about the empire. And I just kind of looked about, looked at what people were saying and, and, and how they were saying it. And what I found was that, especially, I mean, I think the Ainu were the most striking case. The Ainu individuals that I looked at, especially um, at the different exhibitions, um, never tried to deny being a distinct race. They always talk about their Ainu ethnicity. They always make a point of pride to say, I am Ainu, I am distinct. I am of 16, at that time, you know, I am one of 16,000 people and, you know, we are, you know, close to extinction, you know, kind of buying into this myth of, you know, the dying race. But, you know, there, there were no attempts to, you know, try to pretend to be 
um, Japanese. And I found that so interesting that as early as, you know, the first display in 1903, and then as I look at these tourist villages later on in part three of my book, that one of the kind of consistent things is this, you know, um, claim of ethno-racial difference as advantage, as from the basis of which the Japanese should recognize the Ainu and also give the Ainu different rights and different, um, you know, things that they're advocating for. So, for example, in 1903, one of the protagonists of the 1903 pavilion, Fushine Kozo, he is advocating for better education for the Ainu because at this time they are segregated from Japanese um school children. They're supposed to be funded through the government, but the money wasn't really there. And so he was just asking, you know, can you give us some money? And he was also urging that um, I knew soldiers who, you know, who wanted to become, um, or I knew who wanted to become I knew soldiers, you know, they needed this education in order to pass the conscription exams. And so what was interesting about how he addressed audiences, because while he was at the pavilion, he get, he gave several speeches. Uh, he would always just talk about how important it was for Japanese to understand who the Ainu were and Ainu culture, and then also help us, you know, give us money and and have us, you know, we're compatriots, we're doho. So that's one I that's one example of how ethno-racial advantage by, um, you know people themselves was touted. Um, and it's also used as a mean, uh, means of protest. So later on mm-hmm. um, in, in part three, when the Ainu are, you know, after World War II, they want more rights and they want more recognition from the government. They, they state their basis on being Ainu, distinct. It's, it's, it's the means from which they can protest. Um, it's not a washing away of identity. And then on the other hand, with the indigenous Taiwanese, especially this comes out in part two, with the colonial administrators, you know, you kind of always hear they're always wanting everyone to be Japanese. Um, when I talk about these Bunin brothers, um, Dahu Ali and Aliman Shiken, um, these are two powerful Bunan rebels who the Japanese colonial administrators are trying to work with in order to try to govern certain areas of, of Taiwan. And when they're interfacing with these, you know, rebel leaders, they very distinctly want to maintain these leaders' indigenous power and indigenous, um, you know, role within their communities, because that is where their power lay their power didn't lay as a Japanized kind of servant. But if this indigenous leader was able and willing to tell his people that, yes, it's fine to kind of, you know, cooperate here or there with the Japanese, that would give them the respect um, that the Japanese needed. It, It was more effective to have these indigenous leaders remain as potent examples of viable power and so what, what I found in, you know, looking at the photographs of these leaders um, when they're meeting with the colonial officials, um, there's so much pageantry and there's a lot of, um, you know, staged, you know, th- that's a whole nother aspect of this, you know, reading the photos, and reading beyond the image, but that's a different subject. But, you know, this idea that um, how everything is presented, um, reaffirming, um, that these men are Bunan leaders, you know, like they're not erased Japanized men. And because if they were, they have no power in that way. So this idea of trying to make everyone um, Japanized um, was something that I challenge um, in the book. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'm moving on to part two. Um, this part of the book focuses on the Naichi Kanko program, which were basically tours uh, to the Japanese metropolis and also a colonial policy that thought to bring the indigenous people of Taiwan and Micronesia uh, to Japan and show them the wonders of uh, Japanese civilization, quote unquote. Um, so please tell us more about the experiences of these colonial people who participated in these tours. 
Yeah. So with the Naichi Kanko program, I really wanted to not replicate the imperial rhetoric. And, you, you know, previous research on the tours were able to elucidate, you know, where did the people go on their itinerary? You know, they would have like a 10 to 14 day visit to one of um, the cities and they would visit various places. So, you know, previous scholarship would be able to elucidate the um, tour itinerary, kind of these um, sound bites of, wow, I'm so impressed. Japan is so large sort of thing. Um, and I, 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 my question really became as I research, researched these tours, you know, how did these tours affect the individuals who participated? What happened to them when they were on these tours? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the question actually changed even further to use the tours as a way to find individuals and then make the individual the story. And then the mm-hmm. tour becomes just one part. And so, for example, what I did with Taiwan um, and Micronesia is I basically found every single tour group and every single tour group that had a list of participants, I wrote down everyone's names. And then after I wrote down these like lists of people, I tried to you know find newspaper articles that perhaps mentioned these participants by name. And then once I got a kind of group of people that were important enough to actually be mentioned by name, perhaps by someone, I put them on this list of potential people that I could potentially find more information about. And so that's how I have um, Yayutz Blai, who is one of the main protagonists of my Taiwan chapter, Mm -hmm. who is actually, in fact, one of the highest paid Atayal women to have ever worked for the Japanese. I mean, her story is amazing. But I initially, you know, had her name down on this list and, you know, I began researching her and researching her year after year, collecting Japanese documents, Japanese documents. I came across a Chinese blog that talked about her gravestone um, Mm. in Taiwan. And when I was in Taiwan, I I said, I want to see her gravestone. Like, I want to at least go there. And then in the process of trying to get to this gravestone, um, I was able to get hooked up with the local um, town hall. And I actually met a relative of hers and then interviewed, um, you know, several with with help, interviewed several Atayal elders who remembered vividly her role in the village. Uh, And it was just remarkable how you know, it was, I found one name and then that name I like found in articles of, you know, Japanese police reports or Japanese newspapers and her kind of her, her, her life and her kind of her her image in my mind kind of got more and more robust. But then when I actually went to Taiwan and I saw the grave, which was huge. And if you can imagine um, in Taiwan, the number of indigenous people who have gravestones that are huge and hefty, made out of granite, flown from Japan, it's not a lot. You know, it's, this is like really remarkable. And so when I saw the gravestone, I was like, this confirms everything that I kind of had this hunch that this woman is important. And then, you know, the oral histories were just crazy, you know, that when she died, they they brought her body via pushcar railway. You, you know, they're, they're bringing it back through this railway and then um, they're carrying it through the village. All the villagers are uh, lining the roads on the other sides, mourning. Um, it was just like this big spectacle um, when she was still alive and she returned to Fushin. Um, she was carried in a sedan chair. And so she, you know, she, it was just, it, it was just really remarkable to hear the oral histories about this woman. And so, you know, that, that was kind of, you know, so that chapter, although it's, you know, on the face about the tours, it's really about her life. And then, as I mentioned earlier, um, those brothers, um, those brothers were taken on a tour, um, but that tour is less of, the important part, rather the important part is how hard the Japanese colonial um, administration in Taiwan tried to work um, in 
first, you know, eliminating them as a threat. And then when they failed to be able to eliminate them, they tried everything in their power to at least get them to work with them. And this meant that the Japanese colonial officials did not sanction these men who had taken Japanese lives. They had taken the heads of police officers. They had murdered um, countless people. But the Japanese were so weak in Taiwan that all that is forgivable. All that is fine if you can kind of perform this kind of role as, Mm -hmm. you know, being submissive to us to help, you know, get these indigenous communities in line. And so, you know, the story of Ali Men Shiken, who goes on this tour to Taipei, is less of about the might of the empire and more is like this last part of this story towards the end of how they're managing to convince him to work with them. And in the beginning of the narrative, it's all about how Ali Man is so, you know, powerful that the Japanese are bombing their villages um, with planes. <laughs> it, it's, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's really remarkable. So, um, you know, that's kind of the experiences in Taiwan. And then, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Wow, this is really fascinating to hear. I guess it it seems really clear that in your book that, you know, there's a lot more complexities and nuances to these colonial relationships or not just a simple dichotomy of the colonizer and the colonized. And, and this is something you explore in detail um, in part two as well. Um, especially the colonial relationship between the Japanese metropoli um, and the colonies. Can you speak a little bit more about the colonial relationship between um, the Japanese metropoli and the colonies? Yeah. And, you know, one person that kind of exemplifies this um, is a Micronesian man, Nagirikhead, um, who from Palau, purportedly the son of the chief and um you know with this idea of palau and south seas there's a lot of romanticization um the tropics um the chieftain's daughter was this 1930s song um that greg dvorak um has written about and wrote about um it's all about this kind of you know the brown maiden being seduced by the the japanese colonizer and Nagirikhead is the chieftain's son, who there's this kind of reverse um, romanticization. But with him, instead of this kind of dangerous sexual allure that could potentially corrupt the Japanese colonizer, with Nagirikhead, it's reversed because as a brown man, um, he's seeking a Japanese wife. And there's this fear and um, worry of, you know, the Japanese woman being tainted by this, you know, um, you know, this potential relationship with this colonized subject. And so with Nagirikhead, what I, what I, you know, do and what kind of, what this illustrates about the complexities of the relationship, he is this, you know, purported chief, um, chieftain's son. Um, and he's not really supposed to be next in line to be chief, but, the Japanese colonial administration in Palau, they see him as, you know, a, a perfect ally because uh, he's going to, he's going to, he's able to speak Japanese and they see him as part of this young group of young men and women that they want to work with and kind of co-opt the traditional leaders. So even though he's not supposed to be lying to take over as chief, they fudge the genealogy and they kind of say that he's the natural successor. Um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, but so, you know, in my book, I kind of give more detail about this, you know, confusion that the, the Japanese do. But the, the larger point is, you know, they bring him to Japan. He's this son of the chief. He's going on these tours. He becomes this kind of representative of this like kind of new colonial subject. But where it all breaks down is when he himself kind of, you know, takes the Japanese um, kind of, and, and he's one of the most clear examples in my book. I really don't have anyone else in the book who's so kind of passionate about it, but he's wanting to Japanize. And, you know, I know I, I early said, I earlier said, you know, I'm kind of pushing back against this general, um, argument of everyone's assimilating, you know, so 
in this case, yes, he he buys into assimilation um, and he wants to Japanize. And the way that he sees that he can do that is by uh, marrying a Japanese woman. And so this is in the 1930s. Uh, he he professes his desire for a Japanese bride. It's run all across the Osaka newspapers. It's on a radio program. There's applicants who apply. There's a successful girl who seems to be the perfect match for him. And she, when she's interviewed, she says, I don't have any racial prejudice. You know, she's kind of like ex- exemplifying, I'm a modern woman who can kind of help expand the empire. And she's fine with going to the South Seas. And then later on, we find out that uh, one of the South Seas Bureau officials kind of warns her about the realities of how hard it would be to, to live in the islands. And so she kind of withdraws. And so you kind of have this kind of big media splash about this guy who wanted a Japanese wife, and then it just kind of stops. You, you never know. But I was able to trace in, in the records on his side, you know, what happened to this potential suitor and that what happens in the, the later years of his life. And, and basically, he's like heartbroken and he's crushed by this this kind of refusal to to be allowed to marry a Japanese woman. He goes back to Palau. Um, and then for the, the, the next several years, he's kind of going back and forth from the mainland and the islands. And he's increasingly being monitored by colonial officials. He's no longer this kind of model youth who they think they can kind of put as chief, but now he's this potential threat to, to Japanese um, women. And, and there's a letter. Um, so he becomes really good friends with this Japanese man, um, Hiramura Nobuaki, whose correspondence with Nagarakad is kept by a relative. And so I was luckily able to get access to these letters. And in these letters, you can see um, that he's increasingly being monitored. Um, and, you know, there's these Japanese women who work at the at the bureau in Palau that he kind of strikes up a friendship with. And then all of a sudden, the women are told, don't do, have anything to do with him. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the kind of larger point that I want to kind of make about these relationships is that um, they weren't as typical as you could kind of imagine. So, for example, in Taiwan, I'm kind of demonstrating that the Japanese are weak and that they need indigenous um, facilitators, indigenous intermediaries. And then on the other hand, um, in, in Nagirikhead's um, case, that it kind of de- deteriorates to such an extent that before he dies during the Pacific War, um, he's kind of ostracized and he's he's scorned by the local people who kind of see him mm-hmm. as a lackey of the Japanese and then he's also scorned by the colonial officials who who see him as kind of uppity and like daring to, you know, kind of want to marry a Japanese woman. So he's mm-hmm. kind of caught between this netherworld um, and, you know, he's just kind of, uh, it, it's just kind of this, the limits of, uh, of what someone can do um, in the empire at this time. And this idea of interracial relationships is something that I look at in, in different ways um, in in the in this part two as well. Wow, that's completely fascinating. And and lastly, um, let's uh, shift gears to part three. Here, the focus is on the Gaichi or the Outer Lands, uh, specifically speaking. Um, here, you're talking about the Ainu tourist villages of Hokkaido. Uh, the leaders who initiated the tourist industry that developed in Shiraoi in the early 20th century, and also the entrepreneurial Anu who built the tourist village at Lake Akan in the post-war period. Um, so what were the experiences of colonial subjects now who lived through the empire's collapse? Yeah, so with part three, um, I wanted to challenge or at least in the beginning, I didn't think I was challenged. In the beginning, I was like, I want, I want to investigate the Ainu tourist villages. And I wanted to find out how did Ainu come to, you know, be performing in these villages, performing Ainu-ness in these villages. 
Uh, and the general kind of assumption and conclusion was the Japanese put them there and the Japanese are kind of, you know, denigrating the Ainu by, by making them perform their Ainu-ness. And so what I wanted to do was uncover origins of tourism in Hokkaido. So I began by looking at postcards. Um, there's thousands and thousands of Ainu postcards, especially from right around, you know, the Meiji to Haisho era. And by looking at countless, countless, countless postcards, I was able to see a pattern in certain places. And in certain places, there are certain men in particular who constantly showed up. I was able to figure out eventually who these men were. And then once I found out who they were, I was able to look through documents and try to see if I could figure out what their role was. And essentially what I argue is that um, in the early 20th century, um, these Ainu leaders create tourist villages. Um, they basically take a couple houses in their village and turn them into kind of proto-museums. And they do this in order to funnel you know, the increasing amounts of visitors and researchers. And they want to funnel them to these like, quote unquote, um, you know, museums, so they can kind of show them the goods um, and talk about Ainu culture. And so this is not something in which the Japanese came and like made the Ainu do it. They themselves were trying to create boundaries. Like this is our residential part. Like you can go to this one you know, chise here that has the designated objects. And then eventually over time, as we get to the post-war period, um, the tourist industry completely changes um, and it becomes way more commercialized. But in this beginning period, what I found was that certain men of influence, usually connected to, to certain originating founding families of the village, um, these were the ones who had the economic means to create the tourist industry. And what I found so fascinating about these different leaders is that many of them traveled beyond Hokkaido, and many of them were either soldiers or sons would become soldiers during the Asia-Pacific War. And so the, the story of the tourist villages is less about static stasis bodies in Hokkaido performing Ainu-ness, and it becomes more of a narrative of um, how Ainu people um, came to you know, run these villages and how they saw participation in World War II as a way to kind of gain um, further inclusion within the empire. And the, the story kind of in the post-war period is how, you know, just the shock of having fought in the war and then still being economically and socially marginalized. And so a lot of the, the leaders in the post-war period, um, they use the Ainu villages as a means to proclaim Ainu culture, denounce the Japanese state for not doing enough. And then they also, in the very early years from 1945 to the 1950s, they're part of various fledgling attempts to either create an independent Ainu Republic or to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, separate. And, and so this is, is, it's so fascinating because, you know, it just completely dismantles this image and view of certain bodies being static and not moving. And instead, you know, I have um, this one um, Ainu soldier, Teshi Toyoji, who is going to fight in the Battle of Okinawa he is going to um, be part of the reason why there is a memorial in Okinawa that talks about Ainu soldiers and Okinawans working together from opposite ends of the empire. He helps put that memorial there in the 60s. Um, and he is also a tourist leader in Lake Akan. And his kind of role in the Lake Akan community as this viable leader, but with this kind of um, you know, war past that also involves, you know, he confesses on his deathbed that he he's shot innocent Okinawan civilians. So he his story is just as, um, you know, complicated and and terrible as all the other stories of World War II. And it's part of the Ainu story. And, and so I really wanted to, you know, show that this part of the empire um, the connections with travel, the connections of movement, and then this kind of 
underlying question of participation in the war, what it means, and then, you know, this kind of idea that they're the only, not the only, you can also talk about Okinawans, the Okinawans and Ainu, they continue to reside within Japan, the empire is over, but yet they're still there. And they're kind of reconciling this new sort of reality. Um, And what I try to argue at the end is that this new reality kind of involves collaborating with other indigenous people, not only within Japan, but in the international context. And that this sort of outright, you know, speaking of indigenous identities is one way to kind of position themselves in this new kind of order. Wow. Well, I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about um, in your book, but um, Dr. Jomak, I think we've taken a lot uh, of your time already. Uh, So before we end our podcast for today, uh, we have a final question for you. So um, what are you working on right now? Um, Anything you can tell us about? Yeah. So, so so speaking of World War II, that's, that's my new, my new project. Um, And I'm, I'm really excited Uh, I'm going to try to write a history of the Asia-Pacific War um, with a focus on indigenous soldiers and indigenous experience um, throughout the war. And I kind of envision the book to to be similar to my first book in the sense that I'm going to be looking at multiple locations and different groups, but it's going to be different. Um, in the sense that I'm going to try to um, challenge a little bit some of the tendencies of military history. And, you know, there's a, there's so many, I mean, it, when you think about World War II and how many different indigenous and ethnic groups were involved in this huge mass scale destruction and killing, you know, no matter what country you have fighting in World War II, you also had underneath the, you know, the the prototypical, you know, soldier, all these different distinct ethnic groups. And so my book, I imagine that I'm going to be going to different places, um, you know, like the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, um, Saipan and Okinawa, looking at some some aspects of of the home front as well. And, you know, whether it is a soldier's experience um, or, you know, the actual people living under colonial rule whose actual islands are now a war zone, uh, I'm going to, you know, kind of bring these um, kind of issues to light or try to. Oh, fascinating. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to um, your work, your most recent work. Um, soon and I'm sure our, our readers and listeners will too well thank you so much and I would like to say that I had a, a great time reading your book it's so inspirational and I learned a lot um, from your book uh, for my own projects as well so I would like to say thank you and thank you for taking the time to talk with us thank you too I really appreciate it I had a great time great all right thank you bye-bye bye bye